Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We are in Hebrews, and we were just getting started, and yet um, what I love about the author of Hebrews is how deep he goes, how quickly and as I said last week, we're in Hebrews because of the questions that we have of what it looks like to be Christians, to practice our faith, to be the church both in this changing world um, and just in our daily lives. What does it mean to live out our faith, to have an understanding of who we are and more importantly, who Christ is? I think a pairing of those things goes very well to help see our identity both in him and his identity as it's lived out in this world as well. It's our hold fast sermon series that Jesus would be our anchor uh, no matter what is going on in this world, no matter what waves and journeys we find ourselves on, that Jesus, we would be holding fast to him. Psalm 2 gives a very cosmic perspective of what God is doing and how he is at work in the world. Psalm 2 uh, begins with uh, the psalmist writing about there are uh, people plotting against the Lord. Not just any people, but kings and rulers of the earth. They're setting themselves up against him. The psalmist, though, records the Lord's reaction, which is he laughs and he anoints. He laughs at the audacity they have to make such claims against the Lord, but not only that, he springs into action. He anoints. He sends his Messiah. He sends specifically his son to rule and reign from his holy hill, which is called Zion. He makes his, the nations his heritage. He makes the whole earth his. He breaks the rule of the unwise kings and shatters their kingdoms like pottery, he says. They need a new perspective. They need a larger perspective. They need a cosmic perspective of God at work, taking notice of the unjust rulers in this world. Thankfully, we no longer have that experience. Am I right? Psalm 2 is what the author of Hebrews is riffing off of in our passage today. Like a jazz musician who has dutifully studied his scales, he's playing the notes in a new way, in a new scale, in a, in a complete scale. 
and it seems as if the audience he is writing to is ascribing too much rule and authority to cosmic beings in their lives. Angels, he calls them. Angels? Really? Uh, We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking, uh, at least regularly, about angels in our daily lives, apart from like Advent and Christmas and kind of pithy sayings that we have um, in in our culture. Popularly, though, we grab onto angels for them to fill the void of things we don't quite understand. We're comforted by the thought of guardian angels watching over us, even when we're making stupid decisions. Um, We're comforted by the thought of our loved ones becoming angels uh, when they pass away, that they would be watching over us as well. Uh, My mother-in-law made a statement that I never heard about picking up a penny and putting it in your pocket, and it's an angel is watching over you or is with you. When that happens, I hadn't heard that one before, uh, though on Googling it, I didn't find the actual saying. I did find pennies, though, with angels cut out of them that you can purchase and keep in your pocket as well to remind you that there is an angel guarding you, watching over you. We think of someone having the voice of an angel when they sing extra beautifully, uh, which is not too far off of what angels do and who they are. We might think of an angel and a devil on our shoulders, kind of between two uh, decisions, a good and evil decision like we see depicted in many um, cartoons. But lest we forget, the, the author of Hebrews is not making a distinction between good and evil. He's making a distinction between good and better. So why not angels? Angels, we see, biblically have done all sorts of great things. Uh, They have been God's messengers. They have been God's court attendants. They uh, sing praises to God. They appear uh, to Zechariah in Luke 1 to foretell John the Baptist's birth. They appear to Mary, the angel Gabriel does, to visit and foretell Jesus' birth to say that she's going to be pregnant with a child. They appear to the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth in Luke 2. Uh, They were thought to have brought the tablets of law to Moses on Sinai, though this isn't specifically recorded in Exodus. It's generally um, throughout the New Testament, through Galatians, and one other passage that um, I'm forgetting right now um, is mentioned that the angels delivered the law to uh, Moses as well. This might be a part of why this author to the Hebrews is um, touching on angels being a, a good but not better option. Angels are also the ones who bring God's, uh, the Lord's judgment as well. Anytime an angel of the Lord visited, it was a fearful thing. Even in each of these appearances, whenever an angel appears, they usually, after their greeting, they say, do not fear, for the Lord is with you, with Zechariah and with Mary and with Elizabeth as well. They are often um, God's court attendants, Isaiah is in the throne room in Isaiah 6, and then the angel is described as having six wings, two to cover their eyes before God, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. And the angel is the one who brings the coal from the altar to purify Isaiah's lips when he confesses his sin before the Lord. Ezekiel has a little bit different description. Um, This angel has the appearance of a human, but with four faces, like departs immediately from what a human looks like. With four faces, with four wings, and with straight legs and calves, feet. Very uh, descriptive. 
And Matthew, the angel, appears to roll away the stone from the tomb, had the appearance of lightning, and his clothes were like snow. They often sing praises to God, both in the Psalms, and the Annunciation to the shepherds, and in Revelation. They sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. Angels worship the Lord. Our passage says very much the same of him. In verse 6, it says the angels worship him. In verse 7, the angels are winds of ministers of flame. In verse 14, they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are servants of the Lord. They serve those whom God is calling to be a part of his son's kingdom. Angels do God's work in the world. Angels announce who God is and the coming of his son, Jesus. Angels attend God in his temple. Angels sing praises to God, and yet they are not to be worshipped themselves. Why not angels? They're good. There's someone better. Angels fly away, pun intended. Angels are good, but there is one better. What does this look like <laughs> in our daily lives? I think there's a few different um, illustrations and applications of this. I think one is our tendency to worship celebrities and to follow them. We were at the College World Series this week, end, and we uh, saw ORU and TCU play, and it was blazing hot outside uh, the whole time, and Michael, before the game, wanted to go and buy a hat, and he decided he was going to get a TCU hat, and uh, TCU, uh, being from Texas, Texas Christian University, ORU, Oral Roberts University from Tulsa, I tried to persuade him that way, but they, TCU is purple, so I think he went with that. He had a Kansas State shirt on, uh, and so which, who were not playing in the College World Series. So he then sat behind the TCU section and cheered for them as they lost in the top of the ninth. They got they the uh, ORU scored four runs and went up on them by a run and was able to close it out in the bottom of the ninth. We went out to dinner. Uh, that night um, after that, very close to the stadium. And as we're there, um, the twelve, the 13 of us, um, Stacy's family and ours, in walk some ORU players. And they weren't big guys. They were about my height. Some of them were a little shorter. And Joe, uh, our, Michael's cousin, who's a couple years older than him, noticed them and was like, those are ORU players. That guy was a pitcher. And so he goes up and asks, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I did pitch. And so he grabs his hat, that is a College World Series hat, nondescript, has all the teams listed on it, grabs a pen and asks for those guys' autographs. Michael, sitting in his TCU hat, is um, pondering. You could see his mind churning of what he's going to do. So he comes up, he ta he's taking his hat off, and he comes up to Stacy and I, and he says, do you guys have a piece of paper? I said, we, do, we don't have a piece of paper. He's like, do you have anything to write on? I was like, we don't have anything to write on. And he could see he was disappointed. He wanted the autographs as well. He wanted to have this touch with these players and be near to them and be close to him. My heart broke for him. I called him over with this passage churning over in my head in the background. I said, hey, Sooner or later, no one's going to know who these kids are. 
They're not going to play professional. They're not going beyond playing for ORU. Um, and eventually, your cousin's not even going to know who they are. Michael, yes, they will. They will play professional. The ever-optimist that Michael is. These are fleeting things that we grab onto. But we do this, don't we? We follow, we idolize people and celebrities. As much as I'm excited about the Nuggets winning and what they have done, uh, really a, an amazing feat, um, I'm not like super excited. It didn't like, if they had lost, I would have been disappointed. And then I would have moved on with my life. But because they're not worthy of our worship. Uh, we put too much weight on them. We put too much importance on them. And ultimately, in turning and worshiping celebrities, we turn them into a commodity that we want to control. We want to be, say, be able to say, Jokic, yeah, I can't say his name. I'm right. Jokic, Jokic, Jokic. Uh, I should have said that out loud before this. Jokic, now I can't say it. The Joker. Like, he wanted to go home. He didn't want to go to a parade. Like, he can't stand up to that level of pressure. No one is able to have that weight on them. Pastors, we do this all the time when we quote people, theologians. Uh, Eugene Peterson would never fill in the blank. Tim Keller would never um, fill in whoever um, you worship and idolize. Trump, Biden, your mom, your dad. What this really belies, I think, is our deep desire for control in our lives. Control is probably the most fleeting thing we grasp after. We have hypervigilance over people's lives, over our job, over our family, over political movements, over our religious devotions, our marriages, and even ourselves. We want something in our lives that we can point to and exercise some level of control. And when we can't get it, we become angry, we become sad, we disassociate, we disconnect, we yell, or we seek even more control over those things. The thing we want to control the most, though, the thing becomes the thing that controls us, becomes the thing that we worship. And non-eternal things cannot live up to the weight of being worshipped. They eventually will crumble and fall, and so will our identity if it's wrapped up deeply in that. When that thing is lost, we become lost also. It matters where we put our identity, where we seek control, and what we allow to control us. Why not angels? Because they don't sit on the throne, but Jesus does. The author writes about the Son. To Jesus, the author says, God the Father ascribes, verse 5, sonship, verse 6, worship, verse 8, enthronement, eternality, a scepter of uprightness, which means there is no deviation of who he is. He is just and righteous, as he says in verse 9. He hates wickedness. The word is lawlessness. It is being away from God and what he desires in this world. The Son is anointed. 
verses 10 through 12, uh, the author reminds us that through him creation was made and looks forward to his eternal reign and rule again. And in verse 13, he quotes another psalm, Psalm 110, that is likely a hymn of the early church. And so as he's preaching this, maybe the whole congregation chimed in at this moment. It is the most quoted psalm in the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament when he says that he will sit at God the Father's right hand, a place of honor, and his enemies would be made a footstool. The author is pulling from the scale charts of the, or the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, to make known the supremacy of the Son over the angels. If you think the angels are good, let me show you someone better. They will wear out there, but wind and flames, they worship. But the Son, He is worshipped. He is eternal enthroned, exalted, glorified, begotten, anointed, never changing. He is the one who brings salvation to those who will inherit it. His reign and rule is not fleeting. His throne is the one the Lord sets up for him, spoken of in Psalm 2. His rule is complete. It's absolute. It's utter. It's outright. It's supreme, sovereign, full, paramount, unrestrained, and un bounded. He has complete and utter control. Abraham Kuyper, theologian, said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This might be really scary. We want to control our lives, but it seems that our desire for control is just a carrot hung out on a really long stick. Instead of continuing to grasp at that, which will be always be out of our reach, maybe we should start grasping for the Son who is in control of the universe. How do we do that? I only know one way, and that's through prayer. I think there are a lot of reasons we're fed uh, why we shouldn't pray. Um, God's already decided everything. We can't change his mind. He's sovereign over all. We're, you know, these tiny little creatures um, begging for him to notice us. It doesn't feel like it does anything anyway um, much of the time. It's, it's too religious talk. Um, it's a pithy thing to do when we actually need to be out there doing something in our world about the things that are broken that we can control rather than folding our hands and bowing our heads to a God who barely seems to be in control anyway. Which is why I would argue exactly why we need to pray more. It's acknowledging that there is so much to do, and that we are finite creatures, but the one who's able to do something about it is God, the Son who is enthroned above us. See, prayer isn't about controlling God, Prayer is first and foremost answering speech. It's relational speech. It's saying, it's acknowledging that God is already at work here in this place, in this world. Prayer is an act of faith, and it's saying that I'm going to bet on what He is doing in this place. I want to get in on God. It's holding fast to Him. 
Though the waves of life are tsunamis, prayer is saying, I'm with what God is doing. We pray because that's um, often all that we can do. It's placing our hope, our faith in God's action. It's giving up grasping control ourselves and trusting in the one who is truly in control no matter what he decides. It's exercising a deepening of our faith in Jesus, the eternal one who sits on the throne and believing cosmically that he reigns and rules in this place on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is saying that this world is way larger than what our eyes can behold, just like the writer of Psalm 2. God answers our need by presenting us with his Son, his Messiah. Eugene Peterson said, God's Son, the Anointed One, is God's invasion of the secular, his entry into the world where people go to work, where they go to school, where they go to war, when they go to Denver. I actually said Chicago, but I thought Denver. We're in Denver. Prayer is simply saying, God, I need you. And then finishing the sentence with whatever you need. Sometimes it's just saying that over and over and over again. It's praying the Lord's Prayer. It's pausing after each line and pouring out how you want God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. How you need daily bread. How you desire the confession or the forgiveness of your sins. And how you need to forgive others as well. Prayer is confessing our sins and perhaps hearing straight from God, speaking forgiveness and absolution to you. Prayer is opening the Bible to the Psalms and starting to read. Prayer is putting down roots and being nourished by the sun. It is thought that at one time Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 were one opening psalm leading us into this wild um, cosmic world that God has for us. Psalm 1 opens with the image of a man delighting in God's word and meditating on it, praying it. The word meditating is like masticating, chewing over it, over and over. And it's like one who is like a tree planted by streams of water, rooted deeply in what God is doing in this world. Psalm 1 says the wicked get blown about like chaff, like just, just blown around in the wind. But this tree yields fruit in season, and his, her, leaf does not wither. Psalm 1 reminds us that we pray to a God who is not just in control of the cosmic, but is also deeply concerned for us personally. His angels come to serve us so that we may be the ones who inherit salvation, salvation that he gives through his Son. Why not angels? Because Jesus is not just cosmic. He's personal as well. We worship a God who is, far removed, who is not far removed from our lives, but one who entered into our world so that he could be known so that he could heal, so that he could even be put to death. Why not angels? 
because Jesus is the one who lifts us up in prayer. He found himself under a tree praying for us that we would not perish when he knew he was going to perish. He hung on a tree so that we might approach his throne and have access to the one who deeply delights and cares and is in full control of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful um, for sinning of your Son so that we know that we are not alone, so that we can see that you are both in charge of the fullness of the universe. Every little thing you look at and say, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And yet you come to us personally in your Son. You put on flesh and you put on blood so that we know that you are not removed and far away, but that you draw near to us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us of that, that you would help us to see the weight of the glory that you carry and allow us to put weight and glory on you, Lord. Call us deep into prayer. Help us to carve out time in our lives, whether it's in the car driving or whether it's waking up early Whatever it may be, Lord, help us to pray and to seek you, the one who is in charge and control of all things. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.